added time is supported by Fitbit. With Amazon Alexa built in, your personalised sleep score and a 5 plus day battery life. Fitbit Versa 2 takes smartwatches to the next level. Uh, look out the window, Pat. It's sunshine. How well, bizarre. Okay, I came in here when it was winter. How long have we been in here? <laughs> <laughs> They're really keeping it, making us work at long hours these days. Uh, well, I was definitely at in the middle of winter yesterday. I was at a uh, uh, Leinster club football uh, in Mullingar. Yeah. Uh, for Ballyboden Bally versus Gary Castle. Indeed. Uh, and you were watching Winter Hurling. Yeah, I was watching Winter Hurling, Bursley beating Ballygunner in the Munster Hurling final, which, like, you say sometimes that a team, you know, they they carved a win out of granite. Bursley just dug this out of mud yeah. yesterday. Yeah. It, it, was, <laughs> it was actually a kind of riveting game. Mm. But it, it really, sometimes when you're watching Winter Hurling, you find yourself thinking, it's a completely different sport to what Tipperary won the All-Ireland in this yes. year. And when you see um, Brendan Maher, uh, who was absolutely immense for Bursley yesterday, it's like that he has mastered two different sports almost mm. because winter hurling is so different to win- to summer mm. hurling, basically. Yeah, winter football, likewise. Yeah, you were saying that Ballyboden are built for monster football. It was sorry, her- um, for, for mud football. For, mo- for, for winter football. It was hilarious yesterday. They... Uh, I, we talked it was Desi Dolan's last ever game of football oh, right. he's literally burning his boots today he promises that he's going to actually burn them so that he's not tempted back but he's done yeah like he's 40 years old and that, that was his last ever game of football uh, and uh, but like he was talking about the Ballyboden lads like they got hockeyed in the end like, I think it was 11 points in the end and he was sort of going like he says he says like even look at the subs that were coming on there like they're they're big lads they're chesty that was the way you put it there, chesty. That's a perfect description. And that's exactly what they were. They had a, a lad come on, a, a sub who came on and scored second last goal, Holland his name was. Mm. Uh, and he was a brute of a lad. And I'd say he was only about 22. And the thing was, you could look through some of the Gary Castle lads and like some of the lads they had starting and they looked like, they looked like club footballers. They looked like lads now who... You know, definitely celebrated winning the county. Uh, definitely haven't really been totally, you know, picky about everything that they've put into their bodies since they since they won the county. And now, will they'll enjoy they, look? They're club footballers. I, I'm not denigrating them in the slightest. Um, but the Bowden lads that were coming on were just, you know, monstrous lads. And like they were able to put on. This was now. I'm not even talking about. They put on Conal Keeney and Michael Dara McCauley, who came on for the last 15 minutes while they were six points up. And they were just they were just steamrolling through this heavy, heavy ground. People often use that slightly, and they do use this in an insulting way where they say, oh, it was men against boys. Mm. But I often think that men against boys completely makes a difference in winter football mm. because the man is just carrying a few extra winters on him mm. and he'll catch a ball and the boy will come in and bounce off him mm. or get an arse stuck into him yeah. and the boy will get knocked off the ball yeah. and the man will get it and fist it on yeah. and and that's how you win those games yeah. at this time of year by just having a little bit of extra ballast in you yeah. like, and there's a bit of that in the, in the on the hurling side of it although, but but as you say it's just two different sports yeah like um, Dan McCormick was talking afterwards about the game and saying how there was no grass on the pitch basically at mm. all and Brendan Maher was simplifying it down to sometimes all that it mattered is getting a hand and a foot in because yeah. that's all it is the ball is like a bar of soap yeah. and if you can 
almost distract the guy's eye by just sticking in a hand or a yeah. foot. It'll squirt loose. And the amount of rucks that happened yeah. yesterday, and it can come down to who wins the rucks and who manages to earn a free because sometimes frees are the easiest way of scoring in these games, you know. It's funny you mention uh, Dan McCormick even because uh, I was at Barcelona's tip final win mm. over Killer Dangan. And like I've been at, I would say half of Dan McCormick's inter-county games between league and championship over the last five, four or five years, however long he's been around. And he, I, he always come away like it's not like he stands out. He's he's a, a worker bee at inter county level. He is the, you know a, 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 what what do they call a, a hewer of wood and a drawer of water. He's mm. he's that guy. Um, I remember at the Tip County final, he was like he, he was like Kieran Carey reincarnated. Like he was <laughs> he was just completely patrolling the centre of the pitch and stood out a mile, like an absolute mile. <laughs> The Colossus of Bursley. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. exactly that on a cold, wet, grey day. And it has its own charms. Like, I'm not, I, I, I'm absolutely not sort of talking down about it. Uh, but Brendan Maher was, I don't know, you saw this, so I didn't, but Brendan Maher just looked, like, looked amazing yesterday, did he? He just, like, like everybody else, he was struggling with the conditions, but he did manage to get a point that belonged in summer. Oh, I've seen it. Uh, and, uh, but it constantly did happen that you saw somebody going for a ball and oh, they have the ball. Oh, suddenly they don't have mm-hmm. it. And you realise that the man nearest them was Brendan Maher. And he kind of just set the tone yeah. for uh, a relatively inexperienced team at that level. But it, it look, it has its own charms. Yeah. Like you could look at it and say, oh, this is awful in yeah. comparison to, like between them, they scored what you'd expect one team to score yeah, in the, in the, in summer, a, in, yeah. during the summer. But it definitely has its charms. And because, as you said, it's just the people, the, the guys that draw the water if you have enough of them, you'll mm. get across the line. And the young whip at corner forward, he's probably not going to look at, at his best on the day. <laughs> but Bursley, uh, fair play to them. They won their first tip title in 33 years. Yeah. And back then they managed to convert it into an All-Ireland, yeah. which tip teams don't tend to do at mm. club level. And they've managed to convert this monster or this tip title into a monster title now. It's very impressive. And they're a great story, you know, mm. they, they, and because they've had a lot of tragedy in that area over the last uh, year, year and a half. That's been sort of well talked about. But uh, yeah, to nip, nip another monster title out of it. it could, that's only uh, the second tip club that's won a monster title this decade. Like Thurless were always, you know, they'd walk through tip mm. like it, and, and just fall somewhere in the Munster campaign but that's a that's a great thing for them to have done yeah Maher did Brendan Maher himself did say this is my my greatest ever achievement and considering what he's got up, he's done plenty yeah exactly <laughs> uh, we uh, have a grand show today we have um, Paul Fitzpatrick the author on later on uh, telling us about his uh, book about Charlie Gallagher a, a cabin footballer that I knew nothing about uh, but his book is great so we're going to have him on later but first the Heineken Cup Keeps giving, as ever, it keeps coming. Uh, we have Jerry and Gavin. How are you, lads? Good, thanks. Very well. Uh, a very monstery, monstery, monstery Saturday, Jerry. A game that, in the end, they both should have lost and should have won, and somehow didn't either. Yep, yep, I'd agree. Um, if you look at first from Rathlin's mm. perspective, they had Monster on the ropes in the third quarter. They were three tries to the good, and they were pressing hard and created three about three half chances and had a penalty mm. to go two scores clear and didn't um, go two scores clear. Munster survived, got got up the end of the pitch, and then 
built this crescendo that they do in Thoman Park with the full house and the team going at it full heart, all out for the equalising yeah. try. They get the equalising try. It could try. have been any any winter Saturday of the yeah. last 20 years. Yeah, it could at, have been. At tea time. But, yeah, and, and it felt for all the world that then they were going to win mm. it. Having, for much of the second half, you said you'd have taken a draw here in Munster's behalf, no doubt about it. Then they get level and they engineer that Peter Armani actually spoiled a, a racing line out which bucked the trend of the day. Mm. And they get an they manoeuvre a drop goal position in front of the pitch that frankly even myself or Gav might have got it admittedly without the pressure of um, I'm Teddy Uribe no, I wouldn't have got it I know you would have Gav I think you would it was it couldn't have been set up any better mm. for JJ Henry I felt really sorry for him because it was almost it was like disbelief when he pushed it wide because yeah. you just felt Munster yeah. going to do this Absolutely. as they always yeah, do yeah 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 where I was and, watching it the, the, I was watching it in a pub and like everybody had got to their feet mm. when the ball went back yeah. to them. Yeah. And then they all they went, went, all oh. held their heads. Yeah. And yeah. he shown the bottle silence. to get the touchline conversion. Yeah. He'd, yeah. He'd, and his pass, like he'd done everything to be the match mm. winner. It I, wasn't just his path and his touchline conversion, it was the way he played, Gavin. I've never seen JJ Hanneman play better. I remember doing some stats on this. He played about 50-odd games for Munster. I think he'd started one at out half in the Heineken yeah. Cup. He's never really been given his head. Now, it's partly due to Joey Carr being yeah. injured and Tyler Bladell being ruled out. But, Clearly, Lark, Stephen Larkin was having a profound effect on J.J. Hanman and on Mike Haley. Mm. Both players looked completely reborn. I thought Hanman was outstanding. In this sense, I disagree with you. I thought it was very different. I've never seen Munster play quite like this, this expansively. They engage Racing in, in mm. a blow-for-blow blow kind of Two out halves, taking the ball to gain line, looking to create space or provide a running threat themselves, bring others into the game. Loads of width, loads of width on both sides. All four winners scored tries, which I thought kind of summed up the game very neatly. And it's very clear that the Larkham revolution is already in full swing. Mm. They're, not, they're not returning on this. Um, it'll be interesting to see the long-term gains. I think they will be significant. But when those gains come through, I'm not sure. The draw is not a good result and it keeps Saracens interested. Yeah. And I, we, we'll talk about Saracens in a while, but just in terms of the game, I thought it was the game of the weekend. It was one of the few games not affected by rain. The conditions were perfect. The presence of Zebo and Dunica Ryan really added to the intrigue. Mm. Um, the crowd Earl's, were, Earl's doing Zebo for, yeah, for the try. Yeah. It was really kind of... I thought it was Zebo's best performance yeah, now in a while. Yeah. I mean, looking at but the little bits I've seen on the highlights from yeah. Racing Top 14... He was recalled and he, he wanted to show something. It was very interesting to see the way he counterattacked into the middle of the pitch. Yeah. It looked like he was running laterally, but what he was doing was clearly part of a plan. Set up a mid middle of the pitch ruck so the Racing could go either way. And from there, they usually did. And uh, his hard carry was significant in the build-up to the Teddy Thomas try. Um, Finn Russell is like, I'm not saying he's the best at half in the world, but I never thought I'd say this. I think my favourite player in the world to watch is a yeah. Scotsman. The I just love watching him play. The nutmeg was outrageous. It was just poor, his break. Poor, poor I actually had to watch he, the replay of it six times yes. before I knew exactly what it had was, happened. His, his short kicking game is the best <laughs> in the world. Ridiculous. They're going to torture Rory Scannell though down in Munster for it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, Rory, think, no, in fairness, Rory Scannell can turn around to anybody and say, right, you do it. Yeah, yeah. If you're so fucking smart, you do it to me. That was amazing. But I'd say it's happening right now. Do you think Zebo will come back? Because oh, I don't know about that. Yeah, don't know about that. Um, He's twenty nine. If he wants to play for Ireland again, new broom and all that, it's the kind of. This, I presume the decision has to be made soon, though, doesn't it? As in negotiations, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if he stays, Gab. To be honest, I think yeah, he's no, clearly enjoying himself immensely out there. Just uh, to quickly just focus on the end game. I saw a stat going around last night, and I think it was maybe in the Examiner. It's eighty games since Munster, Munster kicked a drop goal. Yeah, and the last one they kicked in Europe. Was 2014. It's five years since they kicked a what, drop goal against Northampton. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, or, or one of those games. Uh, it's and and I don't know. It you know 
stats can mean anything and they can mean nothing. It just seemed to, it kind of really resonated with it that you think of all these games down mm -hmm. the years that they just, decided at that. Now, do you know what? If you went back to it, it's probably way less than you imagine it, mm. it was, you yeah. know. But, yeah. to, but they haven't kicked a draft goal in 80 games. Possibly because they haven't weird. needed one. This is the first yeah. time they've needed one yeah. in, in, in an end game to yeah. win a match. Like Dan Carter did not kick many drop goals exactly, for the yeah. All Blacks yeah, 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 until yeah. the World Cup. He until, kicked one against yeah. Ireland to beat us in uh, Christchurch mm. and then he kicked a couple in the World Cup. But before, I, I wouldn't say he kicked that many more. Of course, Stephen Larkham famously only ever kicked one drop goal his entire career. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. And it was and pretty important. And it yeah. beat South Africa in a World Cup quarter final. Right. And it was from about 45 <laughs> yards. The, the interesting thing, the other stats that really intrigued me about the game I just felt watching it, I had to check this and it was right enough. Munster kicked less out of hand, 24 compared to 30. They're, the Wallabies, Larkham fell out a little bit with Cheka because Cheka thought the Wallabies had become too much of a passing side, but Munster are now going to become a passing side, it's clear. They passed 178 times to Rastin's 123. I was amazed by that. They made 10 clean line breaks to 12. And the only reason Rastin had more because Teddy Thomas was just unplayable. He, wasn't <laughs> he was outstanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they made a... They beat 30 defenders, Racing beating 23, which is a staggering amount of missed tackles, 53 missed tackles a match. But another feature of the game was the footwork, like Thomas particularly, but both out halves, Finn Russell. JJ, I think, beat six players. Haley beat eight players. Like Haley, I'm um, on fire, yeah. He's on fire. It's just brilliant to see. Un and it must be Larkin. And they also, um, interestingly, they made 10 offloads to Racing's eight. Now, they looked liberate. People like Peter Armani talking to him afterwards. He was like, he's just really enjoying training, enjoying this new approach under Larkham. He was offloading his own half. CJ Stander offloaded twice. Like 10 offloads in a game is more than Ireland would ever have done in one match yeah. in the last few years. And I think a feature of the opening couple of rounds in Europe is how liberated a lot of the frontline internationals seem to be by going back to provinces that are a little bit looser, not as restrictive in their approach and embracing kind of an offloading game, passing game. So, so like away from the particulars of the game, you're, you sound sort of excited by what Larkham is doing, by Larkham in particular. Yes, really. Well, now he's being given his head by Johan van Grand clearly as well. It's, it's, they're all embracing this and the team leaders are embracing this as well. They've obviously come to the view that whatever got them to the semi-finals of the last three years in the Heineken Cup and the Pro 14 and in one case the final, it's not good enough to get them over the line or get through that glass ceiling. So they're trying to add something extra to their game. The problem is they're now in a very tough pool to get out of it. And Saracens, we'll know for sure on Friday week when they announce their team, that lunchtime announcement is going to be the first thing we all check. The Saracens mm. team sheet. Is Owen Farrell playing? Is Maro Toje playing? Are they all playing? Because you'd imagine they have to go to Thomond Park and win. And you imagine Munster have to win that game as well. Because the following week, the, the return game in, in uh, Saracens are at home. After that, Saracens have Bristol, the Premier Division leaders and the Premiership leaders. And then the week after that, I think they've got Exeter. So they've only got four games between now and the Six Nations to address their current minus 22-point total in the Premiership, mm. or the Premier Division, sorry. And so it'll be very interesting whether they do prioritise the, the, their domestic matters and surviving or whether they go bald-headed for Munster in the back-to-back -back games. But either way, you would imagine that that draw between Munster and Racing was not a particularly satisfying result for the two of them. But I think Ra Saracens would have liked it a lot. Keeps them interested. Isn't Larkin very like Lancaster in the sense that after the 2015 World Cup, the perception was that Stuart Lancaster, maybe he's not a good coach after all, mm. you know. Uh, when Cheka was trying to save himself, he had to clean out his backroom. Larkin uh, was the main casualty. And we were going, well, oh, maybe, maybe that's what was wrong. It turns out that it wasn't what was wrong with the Wallabies at all. And he's come here and you're, you're seeing it straight away. You're seeing it then in Thomond on the weekend, Jerry. Yeah, that yeah, he, there's a special coach there that's definitely, doing special definitely. things. Definitely. I was surprised because normally attacking game sick, 
takes so long to bring to introduce, you know, set pieces you can get right quicker, defences you can get right quicker. Um, ironically, their defence was their, their main problem, actually, in Saturday. They, they missed a lot of tackles. They didn't. They gave Finn Russell an awful lot of space. They weren't able to really slow down Racing's ruck ball, whereas Racing counter-rucked and slowed down Munster's ball much better. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just going to be very... They're going to be a really fascinating watch this season, Munster, if, I think. If he translates, like, just half... If Larkham just translates half of what he was as a player into... As a coach, the Munster are going to be completely altered and changed and their style will just go to a whole whole new level because he was one of the greatest players we've ever yep. seen in out half. Over the weekend, uh, Leon 6, Leinster 13. This was basically a game that Leinster ground out really, wasn't it? Completely. Um, <clears throat> it was very interesting as well that we're seeing uh, James Ryan breaking into space and I think he ran 80 metres. He actually made two mistakes when he made his big line breaks. Uh, he should have certainly passed in one of them and knowing yeah. James Ryan, yeah. he'd be the first to oh. approach himself for that. Yeah, he threw a dummy. This morning. I'd say yeah. Ringrose would actually be the first to approach him. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and then Larmer and then himself because it was a certain try. But it was a, it was a wonderful line break. Um, they looked really... Uh, um, they looked really, just really competent. Like they, they needed to break Leon's spirit, and they did. Sexton again was fantastic. Got himself in a running battle with a big number eight, as he does. You know, uh, all the stuff you want to see from him. They, um, they again. I, I think you'd be have to be a little bit critical of how Leon performed. Um, although you, you can't take anything away from what Leinster have done. Um, I, I liked particularly Max Deegan, who couldn't get into the team the week before. Only got in because of injury, you know, because of Caelan Doris, and uh, he looked really impressive. Um, they're gonna have. I, I'm. I'm pretty set. I don't. We don't know about Munster yet, but I'm pretty set on Leinster. Are gonna have a really, really good, impressive season here. It's just building and building. A win like that does more for an organisation almost than a bonus point free flowing home oh, win. Yeah. To go to a mud bath against the top fourteen leaders, who yeah, it's easy to, to criticise their attacking game, but that's what they do. They pin sides in their own twenty two, and they their pressure is remorseless. It's what they do in the top fourteen. It's why they're won six out of six at home this season. It's why they're top of the top 14 with only one defeat. And I thought, it almost reminiscent of, of Leinster's 6-5 quarterfinal win away to Harlequins in mm. 2009, Bloodgate and all that. Only this was even better, considerably better, because their defence was almost offensive. The way they got off the line, the way they, there was almost a nasty edge to the defence. Van der Flyer was um, special, wasn't he? Yeah, and, and Sexton and McGrath, the way they covered the wings of, when they were down to 14 men. That 10 minutes when they were down to 14 men when Larmer was in the bin, that was the making and breaking of this game, really. Uh, uh, the, the breaking of Leon and the making of Leicester. Yeah, because who, who are Leon really, Jerry? Like, they're, they're not, they're, they're not a, a Toulouse or a Claremont that, that we would be completely familiar with like what, what this is their second strong campaign yeah. in a row they they top much the table for much of last mm. season they're topping it again this season they have very few World Cup players very few stars so they're quite a settled side mm. um, they might well have benefited from the World Cup this season in that Racine, Claremont and Toulouse are bulk suppliers to Les Bleus and um, they're all struggling for points and they're they've they've ground to make up but I think they so will make up the ground why they're up the top of partly the, yeah, but they're yeah. still a very efficient effective side and uh for for Leinster to go there and win thirteen six, the only problem about that is it's probably um, ended Leon's interest in the competition. Mm. But uh, it should make for the RDS a, a likely five pointer in in the fifth round in January. Gavin, I don't want to be always harping back to the World Cup, but we'll what say, you will. <laughs> but I but I'm going to now. I think he, I think after this week we can stop. Okay, like, fair yeah, enough. Like well, I know one more week of it though. Why not? Like, <laughs> take the Pepsi challenge in that one next week. Gavin. Well, what I'm wondering is like. All these Irish players were meant to be peaking in Japan, and they seem to be looking in damn fine condition right now. And then you see the they French have a great preseason done, Pat. Wonderful preseason, and then the French teams that 
frankly, especially when you add in Ulster's win on Friday night, the French teams seem a long way off the pace. Is this is this just further evidence? Do you? Yeah, completely. Yeah, well, completely. Go, go ahead. Go on. Well, look at Racing's performance. They were outstanding. Um, Toulouse have won two from two, including a come from behind win in Gloucester. Um, and Claremont, um, I, I know they played poorly on Friday night, but they still got a bonus point and they're still going to probably top that group. That'd be my feeling on them. Right. And they're the three contenders and they were always going to be the three contenders. Um, Montpellier just don't seem to fire a shot really in Europe. Lyon have now lost eight out of eight in the top in the European Cup. So it's predictable which French sides. Also, you've got to remember, a bit like the Irish teams, Racing and um, Claremont um, and Toulouse supplied a lot of players to the French team. But France only played four matches in the World Cup. Mm. They had a cancelled game against England. They got knocked out in the quarterfinals. So their match load is actually quite light at the moment. And that's the reason the three of them are probably going to go quite well in Europe this season. Um, yeah, it's the English clubs that are going to suffer. It's, yeah. uh, well, yeah. exactly. It's but, in, it's but your the, point... Saracens your, in particular, yeah, your, they suffered. Your point is valid. About the Irish, your yeah. point makes sense. So... I think there is some well, similar with Ireland because they've yeah. only they didn't they didn't they were they went out of the quarterfinal stages as well. Yeah, but you wonder about the individual performances and what's happening and all that. There is like a psychological light switch that was flicked. It can't be just anger or bitterness with how the World mm. Cup went and why they're performing. There's like a, someone like John Cooney, for example, who uh, back in August we were tipping him as going like you know just potentially could be the kind of breakthrough artist at the World Cup. Ended up being fifth relegated to fifth choice and not going. Completely harnessed that, very similar to someone like a, a Gordon Darcy did after 03. And he's coming back now and he scored two sensational tries that make him look like a, the soccer player he was as a kid, <laughs> clearly. like you know, yeah. He's really pushed himself up into the, the Irish reckoning. So there's people like him who've kind of just taken it and used it. Um, Sexton's just gas to watch. You know, he is exactly what you wanted in mid-October, in late November. Mm. There, is, there is a couple of things to it, but it's... It, it's number one. They've got the best preseason of their lives under their belts. Uh, they are four months. It, it, Jerry's right. They're four months into their season now, essentially. So they are at peak places with less games than they would normally have played at this time of the year. And as they well. are really, really pissed off. Yeah. You, know, you know, like they've just had the biggest and the whole thing where you get back on the horse. They have had the biggest disappointment of their careers, and they've got the gift now of taking it out on everybody for the rest of the, for these few months. I think there will be a cost. There will be a price to pay. Maybe at the Six Nations, as in. Gary Ringrose said it a while ago. This season, this is two seasons in a row, nonstop. Mm. So there will be there will be a big toll at some point. Um, we don't know when. It could happen in April. The other thing is, though, the, the provinces we keep thinking they're going to dip. They're going to dip. The, 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 never mind Ireland. Never mind the World Cups. Clearly, it's not working to a certain degree. The the system in Ireland, the provincial system, and the whole thing about it is so clearly just ticking along. Mm. Like. When they want to look and go, what do we do to change how we perform in World Cups? It's very hard. New Sephora is going to brief the media soon after they've done their World Cup review. He's looking at it going, well, what do you, what do you want me to do? What, you, what would you like me to change in the provincial system? You know, because like if, if he gets to December, he could have another, there could be like maybe one or there could be like two defeats from four rounds, you know. What's, like, he, what's he going to do, you know? Like I said earlier, it's also an element of being liberated. It is a less mm. restrictive approach, particularly now at Munster. This is very new. Yeah. And O'Mahony and Stander and Murray and all these boys are really enjoying themselves. That freshens the mind as completely, much as the body. Completely, completely. And also, and also we, the world moves on. Sport decrees that you have to move on. 
And you can be sure the public have moved on and, and the players have moved on. Break next speed, Jerry. the mm. word moves on. Yes. Sport moves on so quickly. Do you think the fans of yeah. Leinster, Munster, Ulster and Connacht thought for a moment yeah. about the World Cup last yeah. weekend? Could Not at all. Sure. The, the media are like the Japanese soldier still in the jungle, you know. Right. <laughs> still <laughs> hanging on going, what happened? What so, went wrong? Some more we than need, others. We need answers. We need answers. Well, since we're there, we may as well uh, fight one more battle in the jungle and talk about uh, the big news of last week was Joe Schmidt's book that came out. Um... I've read a fair bit of it. Gav, you've read a, a, a right bit of it. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. I, I got it on Kindle straight away. I was, yeah. I was fascinated to um, see. I was really, um, I, I think you'll see this a lot, that there's been a lot of reaction where people were disappointed with it. It was because people expected, like especially people who've been following him and tracking him for 10 years, they expected this brilliant, introspective, mm. deep dive and not like what he normally does with us in the media over the years because he's, he's got such a deep well of wisdom and he's mm. he's come through and he did like he 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 did bring himself from where he's come as a rugby man and how he came through and he explains why he thinks he's an accidental coach you know mm. there was a sliding doors moment and stuff like that but um it is a memoir a coaching manual and two diaries mm. when you try to tick all boxes it's very difficult to like, so yeah. he even says it himself it's not really an autobiography so it, it's, it's definitely was, not i read a good bit of it it's last frustrating week. in that sense because you, know, you want well, it, it to be great well exactly you 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 could get frustrated by it if you had, depending on what you expected of it. I absolutely, you know, absolutely, I Couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, I, I like the the diaries. I just find knowingly dull. Like three pars on the Japan Japan defeat of Shizuoka. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. now yeah, yeah, time, time was his enemy. That's yeah, fine, absolutely. But three pars. Yeah, but I, but I will say, as somebody coming from a non rugby background, the sort of five or six chapters that, that are a de facto coaching manual. You know, his rugby philosophy, his so, whole so ideas. Write, are, write, but write a coaching manual then. It would have been, it would have lasted forever. It would have mm. been the eternal Joe Schmidt book. But I find, it, I find it fascinating. Now. I find yeah. some of it, some of it re- I've, I found I learned So give us 400 pages exactly. on that. That yeah. would have been brilliant. Mm. It would have been so interesting to see him do I that. I disagree slightly. I thought like, I think, I think people would have been disappointed with that as well. You've got to remember, we're not the great unwashed. There's mm. a lot of people out there going to buy this book and are going to review it differently from us. Because That's because he's so likeable and what yeah. he did on the late And late. it's also because, you know, there's a section devoted to the media, which I actually haven't read. Like, you know, a lot, I presume a lot of us get mentioned in it, bad or good, bad or indifferently. No, he doesn't mention and the people he criticises. He just has a pot shot and yeah, needless okay, scores. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's whatever, totally whatever, needless yeah. and it, it but reads this, this, is my, this is actually, this, see, this is my point, Gavin. That's actually, you're actually confirming my point. The people who are going to buy this book aren't going to be mentioned by innuendo or by name or any other which way. They're not going to be criticised. And so they're going to, I think like all these books, had, it, had Ireland gone to a semi-final, it would have been reviewed better and it would have sold better. And we would have been less giving out about actually the format of the book. I think that there's a general theory about, and I know I know Gavin is one of those that a, a good ghostwriter would have made all the difference. Yes. I've written five books, including yeah. four ghosts. A, a book is only as good as the subject is willing to give. If the subject ain't willing to give, yeah. it ain't going to be a great book. You can't yeah. make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. Yeah. And Joe, once I heard Joe had written it himself, yes. I had a feeling it was going to be very like this. Yeah. Joe's the ultimate control freak. I've never known anybody who wants to control everything. He wanted to control the media. He couldn't. It drove him demented. Yeah. I thought, he wasted, I thought he wasted a lot of energy. But I thought the book was insightful. It did reveal a little bit about why he, it irks him so much when myself or other journalists would name a team 24 hours before he yeah. named the team or yeah. worse still, days in advance. Yeah. Because he genuinely makes a compelling case that if an opposition player knows his direct opponent mm. on a Monday as a po- or a Wednesday as opposed to a Thursday or Friday, it will help his preparations. So I can see, I have a little bit of better understanding of where he's coming from now. And I, I don't, I thought some of the run and play stuff was actually, his, his, 
his insights of what happened in games actually were quite interesting. I'm not saying it's a Pulitzer Prize winning novel. It isn't. But I thought, he's. I find him a very fascinating, intriguing mm. individual. He's still the most high-achieving Irish coach of all time. Over nine of the previous 10 years were very high-achieving. It's an insight into what this, how this mind, this intriguing mind works. It's no more than that. Ah, but it isn't, Jerry. He, he, it's not really an insight into how his I, mind I works. Found because I found it he, interesting. He hasn't insight. dug any deeper than, um, like there's a little Between bit Between the lines, maybe let me, let me put it this way. There is more information in Brendan Fanning and Keith Duggan's two interviews with him in the Irish Times and the Sunday <laughs> Independent. And they both had an hour each. Somebody making them answer questions. Ghost, a ghost six hours. They yeah. said one hour each from two top, top journalists. He's never going to give a ghost that much and, control, Gav. Uh, yeah, not control, but it was like, it, it just... It's again. I, I wouldn't have wanted to have been that ghost. I remember to me that's to me that's nearly the most revealing thing about the book at all is that he wrote it himself. Mm. Is that he is that wedded to control that he is that paranoid about seeding any sort of uh, nuts and bolts details of a project that he's involved in that in the middle of a World Cup campaign he wrote his own book. I yeah, remember that, I interviewed that to me is madness. I interviewed Mal, I interviewed O'Driscoll after his book just before it came out yeah. and I went, we were talking away about it and I was kind of digging into him about how you switched from Cambridge to Alan English and the whole process mm. and eventually I went, look, you, you, you got the book you wanted. And yeah. he goes, yep, I did. Schmidt got the book yeah. he wanted and, yeah. and he's going to keep going and doing it. And ironically, the great, the great thing is because he's agreed to, to promote it. So we're going to get uh, some of the best people that have that should have been sitting with him over the years. Like, you know, uh, Keith's interview is fascinating. Brennan's is good. Like, he's going to be across the airwaves now more and more. You're going to see... He, 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 he got very emotional with Miriam O'Callaghan. It's, again, it's, it's worth listening to, you know, because it shows the, a really good side of the guy yeah. and, and she does a great job of interviewing him. I was surprised that he revealed so much in some respects. Like, obviously this was... Um, the beginning, the first half was a labour of love with his mother and he yes. made a lot of dialogue with his mother yeah. to help him recall those early years. Mm. But he didn't mention her, her name. It was so strange. I know, that was strange. Was, that, and he that, didn't mention yeah, his know, father's name. I know, I went through so, looking for their names. Mm, was, so yeah, odd. Yeah. And it but just anyway, a ghost. I thought, just I to finish just, my point though, Gav, sorry, I thought, yeah. um, to reveal that on the morning before the quarterfinal, yeah. his son came over yeah. with this card that his mum had written to Joe knowing that she wasn't going to see yeah. all probability the World Cup herself. Mm. I thought that was extraordinarily revealing. Mm. Really quite mm. revealing. I was surprised we we got that much out of him. Yeah. Mm. It, uh, again, I was just overnight, it, it turned out Liam Napier from New Zealand Herald actually has put him in the mix with uh, as Ian Foster's compiling a team to become the next All Black coach and Joe's is number two. And Joe has said, I'm not doing it until June. It's perfect, actually, because <laughs> the All Blacks don't start till July, their test series. So that was when the actual manager would be put together. Now, Liam Napier in the Herald doesn't really, just doesn't throw flyers out there. So it was him, Plumtree, a Foster's team would be Plumtree who worked with him before uh, as a possible um, All Blacks team. So you're, so, saying, you're saying Joe has been lying to us, basically. Uh, no, no, but may, maybe all along. He, he said there's been clear offers. Um, I don't know, but um, that just came out overnight. I found that very interesting. So Yeah, um, that, that, that doesn't mean that he's lying. You know what I mean? That I know, just means... I'm, no. I'm kidding, no. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I, I, kidding, yeah. I think like the other thing as well is... Can be asked about it whoever whoever book, gets though, Joe you know? Schmidt next might even get a better coach. And okay. Ireland oh, have yeah, had. Oh, Same as like Jerry. Lancaster with yeah. Leinster, Andy Farrell with Ireland, you know, Warren Gatlin with Wales after Ireland, mm. Steve Hansen and Graham Henry after their stints with Wales when they went to the All Blacks. Every coach has a failure along the way. He won't no be career is ever media, linear, yeah. goes all the way to the top. Even Checker had his failures. Yeah, he nice, won't micromanage nice, nice it. Nice to be able to provide. Uh, 
provide these failures. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. England did too. Cool. You know what I mean? So he could, be, no, he could be a number two next. Yeah. You know what I mean? Which Vader's would be a bit strong back though. to what, what kind of was, was how he started to become this great, brilliant coach was when he was working under Vern Cotter. He might go back and do that. Granted, he'd be doing it with, <laughs> with the All Blacks. Lads, you know? we've gone on way too long. Thank you very much and we will talk to you again. Cheers. You're listening to the Irish Times. We'll finish today with Paul Fitzpatrick, who is the sports editor of the Anglo-Celtic Cavan, but more importantly for us, uh, has written uh, a book about a lost Cavan footballer. So lost, Paul, that to my shame, I had never heard of the great Charlie Gallagher, which is a failing on my part, which I'm sure you'll forgive. Yeah. <laughs> the funny thing, Mark, is um, if you talk to people from who are, were around in the 1960s or even 50s, even 70s, Charlie, Charlie is massive, absolutely huge, especially in Ulster football circles. Mm. Um, but he's the reason we call him the lost icon is because he, he just fell off the radar. Um, he died young. He died at fifty-one, uh, thirty years ago this year, and uh, I suppose he had he had an alcohol problem, a very bad alcohol problem when he finished playing football, and for some reason he just slipped to the sort of fringes of the of the Gaelic football sort of sporting consciousness. But like. You know, in the sixties, he was national top scorer three years in a row. He was he was an absolute icon. His to put it in perspective, his, his wedding made the national press, um, the Irish press, and the the Indo. They all carried photographs of his of his wedding day. He was absolutely he was an absolutely massive household name in that era. So so put a sort of a a, a potted history uh, out there for us. When when did he start? What context did he come in at, and and all that sort of stuff? Right. Well, I suppose. Um, the the big thing with Charlie was he was a scoring machine. He he scored uh, I think uh, forty eight goals and and six hundred and seventy points in his career for Cavan. Now people might mm. think Ka- Cavan never had a good team since the sort of black and white days, but the Cavan team of the sixties basically split Ulster with Down. Um, Cavan played Down in four, beat Down in four Ulster finals in the nineteen sixties, but Down managed to get three All Irelands out of it. Probably actually the reason why Charlie is not remembered as, as he should be is because he didn't get that All Ireland, mm. but. He was listed. I think um, there was a, there was a list of the uh, 125 greatest footballers ever done a couple of years ago in, in one of the papers, and he was listed at 94. So that would give you an idea. But anyway, there's there's a quote in the book that says when Charlie was a minor, he was better known than a lot of uh, senior intercounty players because he was he was known as this score machine, unbelievably charismatic, a very sort of handsome, striking looking man, a very uh, really really um, good personality, outgoing type of person. So he, he was known as this sort of up and coming superstar from from he was a teenager um, and of in nineteen fifty five. Yeah, and of course the thing the thing was Paul, you know the the next cabin superstar, you know you know not to be sneering, but that meant something in those days because of course it would it it would have been inconceivable that cabin football would have fallen off a cliff. Like it would have been presumed that when Charlie Gallagher came through and became you know, the, the senior inter-county player, uh, Charlie Gallagher, he would have been leading the next wave of a, of a great Cavan generation. Absolutely, because his his older brother, Brian, had played on the 1952 team, which won the All-Ireland, and three years later, Charlie broke into the Cavan panel for the National League. Cavan, at that point, Cavan had just lost to Kerry in a replay in the All-Ireland semi-final. So <clears throat> three years earlier, they had been All-Ireland champions. So they were, they were still right up there. Charlie had won a McCrory Cup uh, with St. Pat's and Cavan. So that was sort of a rite of passage for Cavan footballers that time. But little did anyone know, Cavan went on and in Charlie's first seven years, they didn't win the Ulster title, which had never happened before in the history of football. And there was absolute um, 
it was like the sort of public public outburst of, of uh, mourning that you see now mm. when the celebrity dies in Cavan. <laughs> People thought this was the end of the the, the earth that that Cavan um, would go seven years without winning Ulster. And to make things worse, Darren came along in that era and won two All Irelands. So in '62, Cavan beat Darren in the Ulster final when they were going for their tour Ulster and toured All Ireland in a row. Charlie was main man on that team, and then Cavan went on and won three more Ulster titles in the '60s. And Charlie was captain for two of them. And Ulster was extremely strong at the time. Like Charlie would have won four Railway Cup medals, one as captain in that era as well. So he was he was just renowned for for unbelievable scoring feats. Like he would regularly score. 130, 140 points in the season. At, at that time, the Sunday Independent kept a, a list every week from the 1st of January to the 31st of December with uh, the top scorers and it was updated and people people went to it every week to check the top scorers and Charlie featured in that list every week in the 1960s, bar, bar none. So he was top scorer in the country on, on three occasions. Every other year in the 60s, he was in the top three or four. There was one year he actually scored more than the Horland top scorer, which was Eddie Carr. So, he, he was a, he was a genius, and and his th- his thing was that he wouldn't score easy points. He was known for scoring these spectacular points. He had a, he had a, a way of doing it where he would he would score from the corner flag. Like he he just had a, a level of skill that was completely off the charts. What I love too, Paul, about uh, that that era, you, you mentioned at some stage that there's actually no footage of Charlie at any point, but we know from pictures that he was this like really good looking guy, mm. and. The lack of footage and also the lack of knowledge in many ways means that stories go around and the legend kind of grows, doesn't it? He he was particularly known for being a bit of a character on the pitch that he'd um, he'd talk to people during games and talk to his own teammates and point out the wonderful things that he'd done. Oh, completely, yeah, completely. Like he he was a dentist based in Derry, so he, the the other Charlie was the whole package. So one person in the book describes him as a sort of man who comes along every hundred years because. He, to have this ultimate combination of sort of charisma and good looks and personality and football ability is so rare to get that in one individual. But he was a dentist and he was based in Derry. He would come home on a Friday evening, he drove a sports car, naturally enough, to fit into his image. And when he'd come home on a Friday evening, word would get around that Charlie was on his way home and people would line the streets. <laughs> there could be 30 or 40 people standing on the street in Coot Hill waiting for Charlie to come along. And since, since the book has come out, I've... I've got so much more material that I wish I had have had at the time, but talking to people, older people especially, there was one man came up to me and he told me that when he was he was a teenager and he played against Charlie towards the end of Charlie's career. And uh, at one stage in the game, just ships in the night were passing in the middle of the pitch and he caught eyes with Charlie and Charlie winked at him. So this is what he was like. He had this sort of a <laughs> swagger. And people would remember that. The day that Charlie Gallagher winked at you, it's something that you would remember. <laughs> but I suppose at the back of it all, then you had the the tragic element like really the book is is a sad tale more than anything mm. I think because he had this terrible terrible um, battle with alcoholism which, which went on and he really did plumb the depths with that within within a short time really after finishing um, playing football He was one of those guys that reacted badly to finishing up didn't he like he as you said there he was such a legend and so famous around where he was and then he moved to Derry when he retired and you were saying that that took him outside of his kind of celebrity bubble almost as it were and that can often be a hard transition for people who finish up playing. Yeah, yeah. He was he was living in Derry while he was playing football but he he still had the, this um, celebrity that he could tap into because he was coming home at the weekends and he was playing football obviously. Now Derry wasn't a 
still isn't this was a Gaelic football town it was more of a soccer town so he wasn't he wasn't as big of an icon in Derry as he would have been in, in sort of the Gaelic football hotspots plus Derry in the 1960s and early 70s we know what that was like it was literally a war zone and there's there's stories in the book about a rumour went around one time that he had been assassinated and people were out on the streets um, because you know Charlie Gallagher mm. that was crossing the Rubicon and then there was there was another time his wife's car was, was uh, hijacked by armed gunmen this was sort of the windows were not, were shot out one time or blasted out in a bomb one time. This sort of stuff was stuff that he was dealing with every day. He he had got married, he had three children and he was running a business. But I think more than that, so the, all these things changed in his life. And more than anything, I think it was it was that he couldn't handle um not being the footballing icon anymore, not not being Charlie Gallagher. His whole identity was tied up in, in football. I know it's a familiar tale, and that's why we call him sort of well, I didn't call him this, but he's been regularly described as the George Best of of Gaelic football, but there's one really sad story in it that one of his teammates told me. <clears throat> where, like a later years, Charlie would have been seen. He would have been a bit of a pitiful sight at times because he was, he was uh, pretty pretty hard on the drink, um, especially we'd say into the late seventies, early eighties. And uh, one of his teammates met him at a match in Breffney Park, and he saw Charlie. And he was the worst for wear, and he went over to him and he started talking to him, and he said to him about that they were playing golf. He said, "Myself and some of the lads took up playing golf. Why don't you come out and play with us?" And he said for for a split second he thought he was getting through to Charlie and he could see the look in his eye. And then he sort of glazed over and he said, Do you remember the time you gave me the ball and I went down the wing and I put it over the bar against Darren? So he never could move on from that. Mm. And uh, it was a very public thing as well. Some people have suffered from alcoholism behind closed doors, but with Charlie Gallagher, a man who was so such a public figure in Cavan and everyone had their own Charlie story, it was, when it, when his demise came, it was extremely public as well. Paul you, this is the second sort of uh, social history of Cavan you've thro- told through a football team in uh, in books. You wrote a, a brilliant book on the Polo Grounds team. Um, the like the challenge of writing small books like these must appeal to you uh, hugely on some level. You know, because you know you're not going to make <laughs> you're not going to make your fortune out of these books. You know, you know that going in, uh, and yet you've produced two. Lovely books, like like with a real sense of social history in them, a real sense of the times. What sort of motivates you to do these kind of books? It's, I I don't really know, Malachi. I, I I suppose not to sound too carried away about it, but people say you're supposed to write about what you're what you know or what mm. you're interested in. Like, and I suppose I am very interested in that. And we're lucky that a lot of the 1960s cabin team are, are still around. Um, mm. Most of those fellas are still alive, and I I know a lot of them. So. I'd meet them sometimes at matches or in the golf course and things like that. So um, it, it was something that was probably achievable. And uh, Charlie's wife, Maureen, is still hale and hearty. And, and uh, I suppose it was a book that was easily put, not easily put together, but it, was, it wasn't. It was no. there in front of me. It was just well, a matter see, of piecing it together. Yeah, in fairness to you, you I mean, uh, I won't let you talk yourself down. Uh, no book, and especially no book like this, is easy to put together because you draw so many strands of of stories together and half histories and that kind of thing. And the thing that you come away from it, you come away going, wow, it's fantastic that a book like this exists, but it's a, it's nearly a, a small miracle. That, 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 because I know what publishing is, I know what book writing is, and it takes, it takes such a chunk out of your life, it it does, but it's it's a labour of love, as mm. you say. Like it certainly won't be retiring off it or anything like that. But mm. it's a labour of love when when you're interested in it. It's not too bad. And plus, um, I think it's important that these stories are told. Like, yeah, like you know, we say a man like Charlie Gallagher. There really there there is a quote in the book. There was a song written about him, and it actually got into the charts. Um, 
after he died and it was a country and western type song called Charlie from Coothill but mm. there, there's a quote in the book from the fellow who wrote it and he, he says that there's no other um, sort of permanent uh, memorial to Charlie bar his headstone and that song really he's, he's a forgotten man mm. and uh, no it shouldn't be like that Listen Paul thanks a million Thanks a million, lads. Not at all. Uh, thank you to Gav and Jerry who were in earlier uh, talking about the rugby. Thank you to you, Pat. Thanks, Pat. Thanks to Declan behind the desk. And we will chat to everybody next week. Thanks a million. Added Time is supported by Fitbit. Get real-time insights on you and your world with the Fitbit Versa 2, the all-new premium smartwatch with Amazon Alexa built in, your personalised sleep score and a five-plus day battery life.